Hey girl, I'm your host Diana, and this is Our Space, the podcast where we talk about the health and well-being of Black women with Black women. For this week's episode, we're going to try some new things or talk about some new things and revisit some old things. The first thing I want to revisit, shout out to everybody who listened to the episode two weeks ago. Audio trash. I was sick. I felt terrible, actually. Like Looking back and like listening back, I'm like, no wonder you lost the plot. I don't know if anyone else noticed, but I feel like toward the end, the, the plot was completely lost. And I hope y'all got the message. But yeah, I felt terrible. And the next day, I was going to go see SZA, my girl, my queen, the love of my life, Ugh, my muse. Anyway, but that was just rough. That episode was rough. Oddly enough, I posted a TikTok last week, I think. It quote unquote blew up, not truly blew up, but my little version of blew up. It's got over 600 likes. I feel like the the TikTok was about the podcast. It brought in some new people. I have new Spotify followers and I'm like, dang, that's crazy. The first episode y'all probably listened to was that trash episode I put out last week. Content, not trash. How it sounded, trash. And there was just no time or energy to change it, to fix it. So if you listened to last week's, ep- well, two weeks ago episode and you came back today, I appreciate you to all my normal listeners who probably suffered through the terrible audio also. Thank you. We will revisit that topic with better audio in the future. But anyway, so that's the first thing. Second thing we're going to be revisiting is well-being. I want to talk about well-being specifically because everything we got going on over here is about well-being. But I feel like I've never really defined it. As a public health professional, who focuses on health promotion. Well-being is a word slash concept that I'm very familiar with, but really it has a million definitions. And depending on who you ask, you might hear a bevy of things. Who knows what you might hear? Well-being, though it has a true definition, um, even the CDC says they don't know what the exact one is, but it's more so, it seems like it moves as like a, a concept. It's a fluid idea, but at the center of it, it's all about wellness and wellness is different from well-being it's almost like wellness is the state of being at optimal well-being so yeah we're going to get into that so let's start with the basics I'm going to give you the change our outcomes our space definition first and then we'll see what the folks over at the CDC have to say so here's our definition aka my definition Well-being is not just the absence of disease or illness. It is a combination of physical, mental, social, and environmental factors. Well-being is a holistic measure of quality of life, physical health, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Well-being also has eight main components, which are physical, mental, emotional, financial, spiritual, intellectual, occupational, social, and environmental. Lots of factors, and I feel like y'all can already tell where this might get a little little sticky. There are eight things that we got to worry about all at once to make sure that we're in the, the pinnacle of well-being or at our most high self. So like I said, there's eight components, and all of those things are interconnected. Overall, wellness can be achieved when all of those things are in balance. And due to a lot of things, like patriarchy and systemic racism, Black women face unique barriers at every turn, every single one of those things. And I feel like if you've listened to the podcast from the beginning, you realize that I've actually talked about each one of those things. And I've kind of told you about the barriers at each level. I know I offer tips sometimes, but really what I'm always talking about are the barriers. And this is why each episode is meant to, in the inception of the podcast, each episode was meant to highlight one of these 
uh, one of these spheres of well-being. And then my goal was to talk about that that element, how it affects Black women, how Black women are sometimes kept out of that area of being truly well, why, how, and what we can do to change that. So that's where we are with that. The next thing we're going to talk about, so that's my definition. The next part is going to be what the girlies at the CDC have to say. Their definition is really a loose definition. It's not a definition at all. They literally start with, you know, we don't really know, but this is what we got. <laughs> so this first part, I took this straight from the CDC website. It says, how does well-being relate to health promotion? Health is more than the absence of disease. It is a resource that allows people to realize their aspirations, satisfy their needs, and to cope with the environment in order to live a long, productive, and fruitful life. In this sense, health enables social, economic, and personal development fundamental to well-being. Health promotion is the process of enabling people to increase control over and to improve their health. Environmental and social resources for health can include peace, economic security, a stable ecosystem, and safe housing. Individual resources for health can include physical activity, healthful diet, social ties, resiliency, positive emotions, and autonomy. Health promotion activities aimed at strengthening such individual environmental and social resources may ultimately improve well-being. So the definition part is next, but I just want to take a beat to say health promotion is literally what I studied in grad school. Health promotion is all about doing things that prevent you from being in a state of disease essentially, if I had to define it. Um, we live in a society, unfortunately, where we do a lot of like secondary and tertiary prevention, which is like, once you are sick, what medicine can you take? Or once you start feeling bad, whereas health promotion is that first level. The goal with health promotion is to get people active, to get people happy and just, again, doing the things that would mitigate any sort of disease. And unfortunately, again, we live in America and the job that I do is very hard because people are like, well, why would I do that when I could just take this medicine? But I digress and we move on. So again, the CDC, the next part of that article says, how is well-being defined? They say there is no consensus around a single definition of well-being, but there is a general agreement at minimum that well-being includes the presence of positive emotions and moods, the absence of negative emotions, satisfaction with life, fulfillment, and positive functioning. In simple terms, well-being can be described as a judge of life positivity, described as judging life positively and feeling good. For public health purposes, physical well-being is also viewed as critical to overall well-being. Researchers from different disciplines have examined different aspects of well-being that include the following. So physical well-being, economic well-being, social well-being, development and activity, emotional well-being, psychological well-being, life satisfaction, domain-specific satisfaction, engaging activities, and work. So those aren't the exact domains that I listed, but that's like a culmination of multiple different people's research. What I gave you before were like the the, the decided upon factors. Those eight things that I mentioned are, are the gold standard, are, are the categories. Some of these other things like emotional well-being and psychological well-being, if you look at different graphics and images, um, they will show like mental well-being and emotional well-being together. Like that is the same thing. So psychological and mental are typically um, put together. Developmental activity and engaging activities and work are typically put together under occupational well-being. Um, yeah, some of these things are put together. Obviously, physical and economic well-being are always two separate. And those are also two big ones. A lot of what I learned in school and just 
obviously now being in the field and seeing with my own eyeballs, um, those two factors play a huge role in, at least in the average Americans, I think, well-being. Economic well-being is tied to things like having enough money to do the things that you need to do, like pay your bills, as well as do fun stuff. If you can't do fun stuff, your well-being is probably down, which sounds so trivial or like low level. But really, if you if you only have enough money to pay your bills, which means you're in the house all the time or you're overextending yourself, um, you're going to be depressed at least a little bit. Who wants to be in the house all the time? I don't care how much of an introvert you are. You want to do the things that you want to be able to do. And we all know though money can't buy happiness, it can buy you a ticket to the things that you enjoy, even if that's just doing a puzzle or reading a book. You need money for those things. And physical well-being is how a lot of chronic disease is uh, mitigated. You can. There are a lot of chronic diseases that if you were just a little bit more active, a lot of us would not have them. So physical and economic well-being are huge. Economic well-being also is tied to safe housing and things like that. So you can see why those two things would be most important. And it's never it's never mixed up. That's Those two are they're always their own category and they're typically listed first. So there's that. There's me and what the CDC had to say about well-being. And now that kind of moves into this next part, which is basically that obviously you all are listening to this podcast. This podcast is called Our Space. This is a space that I hold for Black women, or at least that's the goal. But Our Space is a branch off of a larger idea that I have called Change Our Outcomes. Change Our Outcomes is an idea that came to me in grad school that has morphed into something completely different, including this podcast. But at the crux of it all, the name says it all, Change Our Outcomes. For Black women specifically, we are faring the worst in a lot of a lot of these categories, a lot of chronic disease states. We're we're doing the worst. When it started, the goal was physical activity because, as I mentioned, um, physical activity will mitigate a lot of the 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 problems that come along with chronic disease or can keep you from getting chronic disease. Prior to going to grad school. I went to undergrad. My undergraduate degree is in exercise physiology. So exercise has been and still is a big part of my life. I was a college athlete. Again, I went to school and did exercise physiology. Now, that was the second branch off of my undergrad time. The first, the beginning, I definitely started off as a bio pre-med major. Y'all know where that went. But anyway, exercise is a big part of my life. So knowing what I know, knowing that Black women get the least amount of physical activity, which we'll revisit that in a little bit, but knowing what I know, and having these two degrees, when Change Our Outcomes was born, it was all about physical activity. I wanted Black women to get more active. I wanted them to be around each other and hear from public health professionals and doctors on what they could do to take control of their health. As time has gone on and how and how I've changed and just different things that I've learned as I continue down this path, Change Our Outcomes has evolved into a lot more. Um, though I'm still crazy about physical activity and I would love to host walks and things like that in the future, there's more to it. As I mentioned, there are eight spheres of well-being and that's kind of like where Change Our Outcomes is now. We are the hub for well-being, or at least that's what what I'm, what we're, what we're trying to be. Um, so we're doing more than just, well, um, doing more than physical activity, but physical activity is where it started. So, anywho, the goal for this platform in general is to educate women, specifically Black women, on what it means to be well. That's where we are now. It looks different for all of us, yet there are some things that we all need. So then with that, it's I often get the question of why Black women specifically and why not all women? Though I love all women and consider myself to be quite the girl's girl, I focus specifically on Black women because, well, spoiler alert, I am Black, but also because what I told you already, Black women fare 
the worst in so many so many of these categories. Um, I'm going to list a couple of chronic diseases in just a minute. It's on my script, but in so many categories, and despite being arguably the most resilient group of people on the planet, that resilience tends to come at the cost of our health. Also, not only are we resilient, we're very naturally nurturing. We do everything for everybody, and then our health goes to the wayside. So I wanted to hold a space, me, a Black woman in public health, who knows things, not that I know everything, but I know things that I know if I told other people, they would be like, oh, I had no idea. Or they could hear it and be like, oh, you know what? She's right. I do put everyone before myself. I do make appointments for everybody in this house except for me. So that that is why it's Black women specifically. Obviously, again, I'm a girl's girl. I love the girls. And it wasn't just Black women on my TikTok. It was all sorts of women. So I hope y'all are here and can hear something maybe even understand why this is important and why I am doing what I'm doing specifically for Black women. And even though my target is Black women, obviously everything I talk about is related to the well-being of another human. So if you hear something that sounds useful or you identify with, please use it and tell a friend, tell any woman, because at the end of the day, we're here for the girls, the girls always. But anyway, so like I was saying, there are so many ways and places and things where Black women are unfortunately faring the worst. Because of what I know through my degrees and whatnot, chronic disease is something that is very important to me. And Black women, again, are literally faring the worst in chronic diseases like obesity, diabetes, breast cancer, um, cardiovascular disease. I'm got to open up a list from the CDC just to... Uh, just to get to the point a little bit quicker, but I, I kid you not. Um, I'm willing to bet all the change in my pocket that even though I took a break in my list, if you thought of a chronic disease on your own, chances are you're right about the chronic disease. One, two, um, Black women are probably faring the worst. And it's usually for, um, yeah, that's it. We're just, again, let me open up the list. <laughs> let me open up the list for y'all. So like I said, cardiovascular disease, which is heart disease, sorry, um, chronic liver disease, hepatitis, HIV, and AIDS, which is something that's actually the field that I work in now. Um, I do HIV prevention work. We are faring the worst there. Obesity, infant um, infant mortality, maternal mortality, that is another place where um, that's not a secret. We hear about that all the time. So with that, again, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So there's an another organization, a huge national nonprofit called Black Women's Health Initiative. Shout out to them. They did, I think it was the top of this year or it might've been the, it was after COVID. So either the top of last year or maybe 21. And they did like a, a call to action type situation. Um, it was called Eliminating Barriers for Wellness, Eliminating Barriers to Wellness for Black Women and Girls. Um, it was a whole I'm sure they had like a huge paper, but they turned it into a more digestible thing for the average person. Um, so I read some of that. It was not news to me, but I think they broke it down in a great way. So I took some clips from there and I'm going to read those to you. So they have two sections and it says the facts. One, Black women continue to experience excess mortality relative to other U.S. women, including despite overall improvements among Black women, shorter life expectancy and higher rates of maternal mortality. Moreover, Black women are disproportionately burdened by chronic conditions such as diabetes, anemia, cardiovascular disease, and obesity. Health outcomes do not occur independent of social conditions in which they exist. That is a big point 
I'm going to circle back to it, hold on to it. Health is not independent of social conditions. Okay, so the next one. The higher burden of these chronic conditions reflects the structural inequities within and outside the health systems that Black women experience throughout their life course and contributes to the current crisis of maternal morbidity and mortality. The health inequities experienced by Black women are not merely a cross-section of time or the result of a singular incident. So again, this is these aren't one-offs. There's, there's not some flash in the pan that Black women are fearing the worst. This is a culmination of multiple external factors coming together for the perfect, terrible storm for Black women to then have chronic disease and then to also perish from those chronic illnesses or something else, stress-related things that was also mentioned. Stress is a huge one. Um, but yeah, moving on. Next says, Black women experience intimate partner violence at higher rates than women overall. More than 40% of Black women experience physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetimes, 41.2%, compared to 31.5% of all women. So for a lot of the things that I'm going to read or a lot of the things that come up when we talk about well-being and health for Black women, typically, yes, they are framed Black versus white, but also in general, if you continue to read, the major categories for public health seem to be Black, white, Pacific Islander, or Asian, um, and Indigenous. We typically are fearing the worst in comparison to all women, not just white women. I think because we live in America, because we live in America, the the data is sometimes shown as just black and white. And sometimes people often ask me about that, like, well, why in comparison to white women? I think it's because we are the largest racial groups. And then, for lack of better terms, when it comes to health or like numbers, white women are typically the lowest. So they're setting the standard as far as like they're getting this the least. So like that's that. And then we're getting the worst. So they're comparing the two things. If it was a different statistic or like let's say Asian women were fearing the worst or not worse, doing better in these categories, the data would probably be shown as uh, Asian women versus black women. But that is not the case. It's typically black and white women. But I digress and we move on. I hope y'all know what I'm trying to say here. So the next set of facts that they um, that they shared with us was that African-American women held 8.58% of bachelor degrees held by women in 2012, though they constituted 12.7% of the female population. Only 2% of African-American women are represented in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM fields, while women make up 24% of the STEM workforce. So that's a huge disparity. Almost a quarter of the STEM workforce is women, but only 2% of those women are Black. 35% of Black business owners are women, and 58% of Black business owners said their business financial health was at risk or distressed during COVID-19 pandemic. So again, I, like I said, this was published after the pandemic, but this also ties into um, our most recent episode that these businesses became 58%, which is over half, felt that they the health of their business was at risk or distressed. And I assume, I'm going to go out on the limb here, most of that is due to the fact that it had a shaky foundation to start with and not the ideas or anything like that. This is not a, a jab at business owners. Not the ideas were shaky, but like, again, if we're the ones putting money into our businesses and then our jobs, Black women struggled the most during the pandemic because so many of us work in service fields that were heavily impacted. So a lot of us lost jobs or had severely cut hours. So when you factor that into our businesses and we're the ones putting money into our businesses, we now don't even have the money for our businesses. And it's just a, a domino effect, unfortunately. 
So the next thing I have here, or that they have, is that Black families depend on Black women's earnings. Eight out of 10, so 80.6% of Black mothers are breadwinners and either the sole earner or, or earn at least 40% of their household income. We talked about this, I think, in one of the very early episodes about the financial and emotional burden that Black women carry being the breadwinners for a lot of their families. Black women found that 4% of startups and businesses owned by Black women earn significantly less than businesses run by other women. So that goes back to what I just said about um, during COVID and the the health of the business being at risk. The next thing is the poverty rate for African-American women is 28.6 in comparison to the poverty rate of white non-Hispanic women, which is 10.8%. So I'm going to go again, go out on a limb. And this is one of those times where we are being compared to white non-Hispanic women because I'm going to assume that they are the lowest level of poverty, not lowest level of poverty, but they have the lowest poverty rates. So it's highest versus lowest. Similarly, the poverty rate of African-American lesbian couples is 21.1% versus 4.3% for white lesbian couples. I thought this was a very interesting statistic solely because I feel like, one, we do not hear a lot about the lesbian or queer experiences of African-American women, but also just because it was such a stark difference. That's just my two cents. I thought it was very interesting, and I appreciate that they added that. And then the last thing I have from that article slash booklet situation um, is that African-American women are three times more likely than white women to be incarcerated. The American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, asserted in 2011 that incarceration mainly affects Latinas and Black women, as they are often the primary caregivers for their children and are also disproportionately victimized. So that also ties into one of the first episodes that I did this season about uh, girlhood and how Black girls are seen as older and all the implications that that has on a social level. But also we spoke briefly about incarceration rates among Black girls and how Black girls are entering the juvenile system at a much higher rate and all of that. And a lot of that, again, is systemic racism. There are a lot of things that play into that. But again, African-American women are three times more likely than white women to be incarcerated. And it's just, it's troubling. So then if you think about the things that go into incarceration or the, the compounding effects that that could have, on leaving children behind, or often crime in America, or crime everywhere, honestly, I assume, but I am an American. Um, Crime is so heavily tied to poverty. So when you think back on how I just said that African-American women are experiencing more poverty, you think back on a couple weeks ago when I said that we have businesses that aren't making as much money. We're having businesses that we have to put capital into. Also, a majority of us live in households that make less than $75,000 a year. You can see how quickly Or even if you just think about your own life and the people around you, how quickly and how much poverty you can see even around you. And you can start to see like, well, yeah, I see a lot of poverty. And it makes total sense that that same group is being so heavily impacted by incarceration. Crime and poverty are linked hand in hand. Um, Crime and educational attainment, those things go together like peanut butter and jelly. And this is just a small rant until America stops playing around and stop playing in our face about poverty and doing social services for people or having social services available because I know we got the money. It's not a money issue. Pay those people and make those services available. But until we do, we will continue to see crime at the rate that we see it at, not just in our community, in all communities. But I digress. I got a story for y'all and I might tell it at the end. It just happened. So I'm still a little traumatized. But again, I social services are so necessary. Paying the people that do those jobs are so 
necessary. So much of what we go through as a country, so much of what we see, the drug problems and crime, so much of that can be mitigated if we just put effort into pouring into our children and pouring into social services. But okay, I promise I digress this time. Okay, so what I've given you so far is the layout, the lay of the land. I've told you about well-being. I've told you why it's so important that Black women have a space for well-being because we are often kept out of it. We're kept out of it for structural reasons, uh, systemic racism, and all of that. But also, if you're starting to think critically like I hope you are, you're seeing a pattern in how this could be particularly impactful or problematic if at every turn you have a barrier to even just one of those things. Um, One barrier at one stop will, again, turn your whole well-being little map chart situation on its ear. You are now out of whack. Until each one of those eight spheres can be satisfied, you can't fully enjoy life. I know for a lot of us, we are forever making, making, uh, ooh, there's an expression for this. I can't think of it. So I'm just going to say this. We make the best out of what we have every time. I can think of many scenarios that I've been told about, um, stories that I've been told about in my family about making do with what you have. One of them that comes to mind first, this is such a tangent, y'all. My grandma talks about how she would patch my uh, mom and aunt and uncle's clothes and how like she did that for financial reasons, but how low-key it was kind of cool. It became a thing. I'm not sure it was a thing when she was doing it, but then you see an influx of like patched clothes and things like that. Um, But yeah, making do with what we have. We do it all the time, but it's unfortunate that we constantly have to make do with what we have. Admirable, but annoying. We should not always have to. We should not also, we should not be kept out of well-being the way that we are. So there's that. So I've kind of touched on each one a little bit, but I want to get more in depth on each one of these things and where exactly the barrier is for Black women or what it what it really looks like. So the first thing that I have on here is physical, the physical element of well-being. So this is an excerpt from, hmm, honestly, I don't, t- don't know where I got it from in the first place, but ultimately they got it from um, Health and Human Services. Those guys, love those guys. Engaging in regular physical activity has well-known health benefits, yet only 34% of African-American women achieve the recommended levels, so greater than or equal to 150 minutes of, like, moderate to uh, vigorous activity. So, like, going to workout classes would be moderate to vigorous, taking a bike ride, um, anything that gets your heart rate up. Moderate to vigorous is obviously subjective, but it's just a measure of exercise, and it's just not a a walk, so like a brisk walk would be the start of moderate. Anyway, um, <laughs> recommended levels of physical activity as recommended by the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, which comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion in Washington, D.C. So one of the things, so not only, I feel like if you look at that surface level, you're like, oh, so we're not working out, but no one discusses the why. Well, people do but most people don't. So it's like, oh, that's your own fault. You're not working out. Oh, you're this, you're that, you're lazy. No. One of the things that comes to mind first when I talk to people about this is our hair. We know our hair is so important to us. Our hair also can be the cause of a lot of frustration. It's definitely a money pit sometimes. But if you think about it, I feel like everyone has had this experience. Every black woman has probably had this experience at least once. You get a fresh silk press on Friday, I know I used to get my hair done on Fridays. You get a fresh silk press on Friday. 
Monday, the last thing you're trying to do is go in and sweat your hair out. Why? Not solely vanity. So many people seem to forget that our hair and our careers are so tied together in the sense that you can't, as a black woman, just go to work, frizzy edges, poofy hair, like, because immediately you're deemed unprofessional. So you have to constantly worry about not your hair because of vanity. I know some of it is vanity because, again, I feel that as well. But a lot of it also is how can I manage working out and sweating but not also wasting the money that I spent on my hair or going to work with my hair being poofy or not done or not looking, quote, unquote, presentable. So then you have to really weigh the factors. So then sometimes for a lot of people, it's, well, I just won't work out. I can't manage having tamed, quote unquote, I would never call anyway, tamed or groomed or quote professional looking hair if I sweat. A lot of people say, oh, I sweat in my head. I hair sweats all the time. That's a big thing for a lot of people. Some people sweat and they sleep, but we have to think about that. And that's something that a lot of people or a lot of different, um, I'll just say people. A lot of people don't recognize when it comes to our physical activity. Another common thing that disrupts physical activity for a lot of us is that if you want to go to a group fitness class, you're hardly ever going to see other black women. And you're definitely, not definitely because I am a group fitness instructor, but you're, the chances of you seeing another black woman in the class or teaching the class are low. And this ties into the social aspect that we'll get into. But like, who wants to go into a space where they don't see anyone that looks like them? And that is the case for a lot of Black women. And again, that's something that a lot of people don't think about. Who wants to work out alone or feel isolated just at a workout class? Oh, I want to try yoga. I want to try Pilates. Those are two things that even though they aren't technically being gatekept, are heavily that just it's, it's a place a lot of white women go. Group fitness is a white woman dominated area, not only as attendees, but as instructors. So then you go into this place and you're like, you know what, I'm good. And then for a lot of people, again, social ties for wanting to go back are a big part of it. So either the the barrier is being able to go and feel comfortable or going back. A lot of people, you make friends at group fitness class and then you go back solely because your girl is there. But if you don't feel comfortable the first time you went, and you don't meet another black girl, not that you have to make a black friend. I don't want people to think that, but it helps. And I don't want anybody who may be a naysayer to hear that and not be realistic. Like, let's be real for five seconds. One of the first things you can bond off of in any racial group is being of the same ethnic group or the same in group. That's another tangent that I won't go off on. But I just, again, I want you to be serious for a second. Going somewhere and not seeing another person that looks like you can be very hindering. And for a lot of black women, that is the case when it comes to physical activity unfortunately. So between our hair, not seeing representation of teachers and students that look like us, and then also time. Time and finances are another big thing for, I don't want to say a lot of women, just I don't want to generalize, but for a lot of us, we're heading our households. Um, And if you have kids, going to the gym can be hard. Um, If the gym doesn't have childcare, or if you don't feel comfortable leaving your child there, what are you going to do with your kids when you want to go work out? the average workout class is at minimum 45 minutes. And if you don't have that social support, if you don't have someone to watch your child or you have someone who will watch your child for you to go to work, but not for you to go to gym, how how can you do that? How is that managing? How is that manageable? Or I mentioned yoga and Pilates. Pilates, um, Lori Harvey got y'all out here in the choco, ready to do Pilates, but Pilates, I kid you not, will run you about 250 a month. And I'm not even being dramatic. That's an expensive little endeavor. So again, if you don't got the the free income to do that. How can you do that? Now, you don't have to do Pilates. That's not the only way to work out. But I mean, if you want to do that, 
it could be a barrier, the cost of it. Or a lot of us live in places where there's not a ton of green spaces. So it's like, oh, just go out. You don't have to do Pilates. Go out, work out where? Some places, which we'll get into when it comes to environmental, some of us don't even live in areas where there is green space to walk, run, or to do any sort of outside activity. That's that's a reality for a lot of people. So there are so many barriers to simply getting 150 minutes of physical activity. That's five days of 30 minutes. The time isn't that big, but when you have to find the time, you have to find the money, it's a lot. It can be a lot. And for a lot of people, when you don't have any clue on how to find um how to find a resource or to find certain things, you just give up. And that's just human nature. If it's not easy or if it if it's not, if you don't have someone to tell you about it or teach you about it, you're just gonna give up, which again is where I come in. I'm really hoping that I can constantly be a source of resources and understanding. So hopefully maybe you'll hear this, maybe I'll provide a tip later on that you're like, okay, maybe I'll try that for my physical activity. But yes, ooh, spend a lot of time on physical activity or moving on to mental, the mental sphere of this. Okay, so for this next part, I have another article. I'm going to link the article in the show description, of course, like always. I'm going to try not to read it all, but this is an article titled, Study Reveals Barriers to Mental Health for Black and Latino Women. It was published December of last year, so this is very current information. This particular study was conducted in California. I'm trying to skim through the to give you the meat first, or be the sides. Um 800 Black and Latino women across California, and they were looking for insights on important concerns that they face with their families, accessibility of mental health services, preferences for providers, and priorities for approaches to create greater equity in the provision of mental health care. This, again, came on the heels of COVID. People have been really trying to fit, like, COVID really opened up a lot of people's eyes, especially when it comes to public health, not only because it was disease and there was a vaccine that came out during the time, but public health in general, I swear. So I started school, I started grad school in 2018 and I finished during the pandemic. It wasn't until the pandemic that I feel like my own family really understood what I was going to school for, which I think is hilarious. Um, Shout out to my grandma who is still always trying to get me a job at the health department in my hometown. Um, Because prior to that, I it didn't click for her. But COVID, like I said, opened up everybody's eyes on what public health is, what it means, and everything that goes into it. So this study came on the heels of COVID. And they talked to, like I said, Black and Latino women. And then they got some responses. The responses were not um, groundbreaking to me, but I'm glad someone quantified it. So often we are left out of discussions when it comes to research. It's when you look at most research, research, especially when it comes to mental health, for decades, for probably centuries, was very heavily rooted and focused toward Black, not Black, whew, toward white, white men. So there's there's not a ton of information all the time on women. And then you get down even lower, there's even less for Black and Latino women. So I'm going to start here. It's kind of like middle of the page for this. The current social and economic climate creates a distinctive set of pressures on Black women and Latinas. 34% cite finances or issues related to inadequate income as the top concern facing their households. Safety, health, and housing also rank as chief concerns. More than three in five respondents reported having a mental health concern for which they did not seek care from a provider. They attributed this to various barriers, citing travel expenses, length of travel time to appointment, and inability to take time off work. Now you will find that those, this is me speaking, not the article, those are common barriers for a lot of things, especially related to healthcare, not just mental care, mental health care. Women without coverage for mental health services, those with mental health conditions, younger women, and those covered through um, 
Medi-Cal, which must be California's version, their state version of um, Medicaid or Medicare, reported the highest rates of untreated needs. So people with public insurance or no insurance and younger people were um, had the most untreated needs, highest rates of untreated needs. The women that did seek help reported often having negative experiences. 70% of Black women and 54% of Latinas reported racial or ethnic discrimination. Another 59% of Black women and 55% of Latinas reported assumptions people make about your income or level of education. 40% of Latinas reported discrimination based on assumptions about their ability to communicate in English. And 28% reported assumptions about your documentation of immigration status. Several other types of discrimination were reported, particularly relating to class, faith, size, and accent. Again, these are things that are, if you look deep, are related to all areas of healthcare, not just mental health. So often, or even actually just pretty much, again, living in America, these are things that you encounter every day as a person of color. People will immediately make assumptions about what you know, who you are. If you have any sort of accent, people automatically think that you're not. There's no way you could be nearly as bright as the person that's speaking to you, which is wild because every other country is killing us in literacy, mathematics. It's, it's really wild. It's such an amazing thing, not amazing, good, but amazing, bad, how white supremacy and things in America have conditioned all of us to think that we're the smartest people on the globe when really we're probably the furthest from it. But I digress. So anyway, our research draws a direct line between challenge between the challenges in assessing mental health care for Latinas and Black women to the shortage of mental health professionals that share our backgrounds, said Helen Torres, CEO of Hope. Hope is a, a foundation or group. The data is a call to action for healthcare providers and educational institutions to address the negative impacts of the healthcare workforce that does not represent the communities it serves. We must take steps to close the representation gap and provide better care to all. Nearly half of respondents reported difficulty finding access to mental health providers. 57% of Black or African-American women and 38% of Latino women said that it is extremely important or very important to have providers of the same background, but more than half said it is difficult to find providers who shares their values or come from similar background. According to the Medical Board of California, only 4% of active psychiatrists practicing in California are Latino and only 2% are Black. That is a this is me again speaking, that is a statistic that holds true nationally. There's so few of us in those fields. So then when you are seeking a professional, you will be hard pressed to find one, unfortunately. And I think the numbers are even lower for like black males. So it's, yeah, it's abysmal, not abysmal because there is hope, but (laughs) it is challenging. The article goes on to say the ability to find a therapist with shared values and offering low cost services were the most commonly reported barriers, though many also reported difficulty finding providers and services covered by their insurance. Insurance acceptance was the most documented problem across all age groups, underscoring the widespread affordability of mental health care. And I agree 100%. I hit the therapist lottery when I found my therapist. I've only had one, so I didn't have to switch. So that that in and of itself is also a barrier because you're not always going to click with the first therapist you find. So you might find a Black one. And even though y'all have similar backgrounds and things like that, y'all might not click or it just might not be a fit. So then you have to go back to the drawing boards, so on and so forth. But again, I hit the lottery. My good sis, Miss Karen, shout out to her doesn't even take insurance, but in a good way. She don't want to deal with the problems. So she has a very low fee, flat fee, and my sessions are an hour. 
and I just pay her through Cash App. When I first told my friends that, they were like, oh, that's shady. Little do they know, sis was doing everybody a favor by making her services more accessible. We didn't have to go through the rigmarole of insurance when I temporarily didn't have a job and therefore didn't have insurance. There was no lapse in care. And again, sis is providing the low cost services because she loves what she does. That's not the case for most providers. And from what I hear from TikTok, for a lot of healthcare professionals, uh, mental health professionals, the the struggle that they got to go through in insurance, it, it's not worth it for them. And not worth it like financially, but not worth it like it's just so time consuming and insurance companies make it so hard. But again, we digress. So there, again, so we're undigressing. <laughs> um, offering low cost services and insurance are two things that are big barriers for people of color. Disparities in women's health are well documented at almost every level of healthcare. Mental health is no different. The mental health crisis is not specific to adults. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 15 to 19, according to a 2019 study on mortality. Suicide rates among Black youth have been rising for more than a decade, most sharply among Black girls. According to 2021 report, approximately one third of young Latinas seriously contemplate suicide. Long existing disparities in maternal health are also present with relation to mental health. Women of color suffer from higher rates of postpartum depression compared to white women. They also have a lower rate of screening and treatment for postpartum mood disorders. Now, that second part, the lower rates of screening and treatment are due, in fact, directly to the same reasons that Black women experience such high maternal mortality, because people do not listen to us. Also, furthermore, people assume that we are stronger than what we are. There's some dehumanizing quality that exists among Black women, not literally, but in the eyes of others, that there's a, there's a reason why they're not screening us. They aren't screening us because they think, oh, she's fine, or she came in and she's smiling. But if so there's no digging deeper. There's no trying to get to, are you feeling okay? There's not, there, the care is just simply not given to our mothers giving birth and thereafter people trying to tap in and really see what's going on with us so that again that's one of the main reasons if you know anything about maternal mortality it's not because we're getting sicker more or anything like that it's literally because doctors are not listening to us and these same doctors are not screening us for something very common like postpartum depression because also depression has a tendency to look different in black women but again because we aren't researched enough we aren't talked to enough about our lived experiences they're not taking that that known data and doing something with it. But I digress. Actually, I'm going to keep saying I digress and I'm not going to digress because I'm, I'm on the next. I want people to hear this, hear me, and take action. Um, yeah, I'm not digressing anymore and I'm going to stop saying that I am. <laughs> so the next fear, so we're done with mental health. We took a lot of time on physical and mental. The next one is financial. And I think it's pretty obvious. I brought this up last week and I brought it up at the beginning of the episode. A lot of us, again, just do not have the financial means. Despite having so many um, skills and degrees and things, we are getting, we're making less money. Um, I think the statistic is for every dollar a white man makes, black women make 58 cents. And that's a new statistic because it used to be 63 cents, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, we're just not making the money. We're And we're not getting the jobs systemic racism at its finest. So I'm not going to harp too much on financial. I've already told you about the financial state of Black women. The next one is emotional, and it kind of, again, ties into mental. Mental and emotional go together. Um, our emotions are usually just not checked for. I mentioned a few minutes ago, well, a few seconds ago, honestly, that our depression and anxiety look different. Depression in a lot of Black women appears as irritability. 
as opposed to the sadness and crying that so many people see. Because I think a lot of our depression stems from frustration. So our depression looks like irritability. That's something I know for myself to be true 1000%. I remember one day I was talking to my therapist and I was like, everybody's just getting on my nerves. Everyone is so annoying. She's like, you're irritable. I was like, yes, because everyone's so stupid and annoying. And she's like, uh, yeah, sure. Or you're just, you know, having another, you know, bout of depression. I was like, uh, sure, whatever, but they're annoying. But, but really like that isn't oftentimes, I think that's why depression again in us goes unchecked for so long. I've had some very, very, very dark times in life that no one really checked in on because what I was giving was attitude. I was not giving crying and sobbing. Now, was I doing that alone? Yes. But what I was presenting was irritability. And for a lot of black women, that is the case. We're not taught about that. We're not educated on that for ourselves. And other people aren't educated on it either. So then they just write us off as, oh, she's got an attitude. Oh, she's this. She's angry. She's angry because she's hurt and she's frustrated and depressed and maybe a little anxious. But God forbid someone ask her about it. Okay, so mental and emotional go together. So we're going to move on to spiritual. What I have written here is religious trauma. This might be a hot take, but I think especially seeing my generation and how we tackle going to church and spirituality and different things like that. A lot of us, when you talk to people, um, actually someone interviewed me about this once, um, religious trauma. A lot of us grew up going to church. I went to church at birth until, I want to say until I went away to college, honestly, and then I started working more and I had my own built-in excuse, I guess, for not going to church anymore. But religious trauma is real. A lot of us grew up in, again, not to generalize, but a lot of us grew up in either Pentecostal or Baptist churches. There's a lot of hypocrisy. I'm trying to tread lightly on this one because I'm not trying to offend anybody. Love the Lord, love church. And if you like going to church, you should continue to go. But it is a known large experience for a lot of us to have religious trauma. Going to churches that were kind of judgmental or kind of pushed you out and ostracized you when you were maybe going through something or had very stifling rules, rules that didn't really make sense to you. Um, Some churches have like doctrines that are very heavily rooted in patriarchy, but I don't think that they would ever consider that. So as a young budding feminist, you might go to a church that's like, oh, you can never be a pastor here. You're a woman. Girl, what are you thinking? So like those sort of things. And that is a very common Black experience. Religion and faith are so heavily rooted in a lot of our culture and like by culture, I mean Black American culture, not that Black people in other countries are not religious, but like for us specifically, Black American culture, Christianity is what kept a lot of our families together post-slavery and everything. That is that is the foundation of many of our home cultures and families. So then there are people who are now trying to break away from their home cultures or breaking away from going to church or speaking up about how, you know what, my church actually really damaged me a couple weeks ago, not my church, other people. Um, it was a couple weeks ago on TikTok. There was a whole trend of tell me the most messed up thing that happened to you at church. And it was full of black people telling their stories about the traumatic things that happened to them. Um, so yeah, so for if you have experienced some sort of religious trauma and you're now navigating in a space of, well, maybe I should go towards spirituality or maybe I should find a Bible study and it, it can be challenging. So that can leave your spiritual health kind of in limbo. The next one is occupational well-being. Occupational well-being is related to work. Despite being so well-educated, many of us are in jobs that just simply do not match our skills and education level, which can lead to lower wages and limited job satisfaction. If you're doing a job that doesn't exactly match what you're passionate about, and if you went to school for something that you're passionate about, and now you're in the field and you're not making any money, or you can't even land the job that matches 
what you went to school for. And I know that's the case for a lot of people. It can be very disheartening when you're, and because as adults, we spend so much time at work. If you're dissatisfied with your job, it, it's hard. It's hard to shake that off. Like I'm learning very much. So at five o'clock, it's over with, I'm done. But for a lot of people, that's not the case, especially if you are a person who has built a lot of their identity on their job. If you have a job that doesn't fulfill you though, it can be hard. And for a lot of us, that is the case, unfortunately, because again, even if you like your job, you might not be making, not might, the chances are that you aren't making the kind of money that you would want to make. Um, it seems like the girls on the internet, the only ones that are making the money are the lawyer bays. Love them. Somehow I am on black, black girl, lawyer, TikTok, love all of them. They're all giving very much luxury. So they got the money. Um, black doctors, obviously the girlies are making money there. Um, the black tech girls, they're holding on. I know the tech industry is in a little of a shakeup right now. But other than that, the rest of us also went to school and a lot of us are just not making the money. I see a lot of black girls who are very well educated who are doing series series about budgeting because the way inflation is set up right now, even though they're doing something that they love, the money is just not matching. And that's the case for a lot of us. And this isn't just anecdotal. I know I bring up TikTok and social media a lot. But again, I also told you that for every dollar a white man makes, we're making 58 cents. And in the age of inflation, that you see how that math does not math. So then environmental. I have one word written and it is redlining. Redlining is something that took place in the past that is still very much affecting us today. This goes back to what I said about physical activity and green spaces. A lot of our neighborhoods and minority other minority dense areas are still heavily impacted by um, redlining. Um, if you aren't familiar with redlining, I have pulled up an article here. I think it defines it. If it doesn't, I'll throw the definition in, uh, not in the chat, in the description. So one of the first things that it says is greater historic redlining is related to current neighborhood characteristics. So characteristics like lack of green spaces, lack of fresh fruit markets, grocery stores, including increased minority presence, higher prevalence of poverty, and greater social vulnerability. Social vulnerability, I assume, relates to things like gangs and and just being vulnerable socially and higher prevalence of poverty, like I already mentioned. Um, there are statistically significant associations between greater redlining and general indicators of population health, including increased prevalence of poor mental health and lower life expectancy at birth. So the lower life expectancy at birth is um, directly related to minority groups. Black women and men um, are born with lower life expectancy in comparison to our white counterparts and poor mental health. This is something that I also feel like does not get talked about enough when we talk about mental health. Yes, depression, anxiety look different in black women, but in general, and this is for black boys, obviously anyone living in a in a certain area can have this, but this resonates the most with me when I think about black boys, poor mental health um, as it relates to things like PTSD, PTSD of living in the hood. And I hope I don't sound like some sort of uppity, oh, I made it out. Da, da. No, because that's not the case. However, PTSD and a link to living some like in a poorer, more impoverished, more maybe gang riddled area, the the connection is it, a straight line. PTSD and those things are heavily connected. However, no one is looking, no one gives them that benefit of the doubt. If you grow up around certain things or in rougher environments, the chances of you having PTSD are great. However, no one is taking that into consideration when you're coming to school. Those kids are then just getting in trouble and getting disciplined as opposed to, hey, 
Maybe we should talk to the guidance counselor. How are things at home? How are things in your area, especially at low-income schools? But again, those schools don't typically have the funds to get multiple social workers and things like that. So the cycle continues. But yeah, those are all things associated with past redlining that is now still affected because of we are those are now our neighborhoods those are our places or for some people if your family did get a home during that time y'all probably still have that home and even though y'all are making more money now that family home is still in the midst of a heavily discriminated area Um, the next part says there's a statistically significant association between greater redlining and pre-existing conditions for heightened risk morbidity in COVID-19. Patients like asthma, COPD, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, kidney disease, obesity, and stroke. Again, this is another article that came on the heels of COVID. But all of those things that I mentioned, all of those um, chronic diseases are, um, as I mentioned earlier, places where Black people are faring the worst. Black women, Black men, minorities in general are faring the worst in every single one of those chronic diseases. And they were exacerbated by COVID-19. Because those same people, if you think about it, this ties into the redlining thing. When you live in a certain area, you are sometimes at a greater distance from medical care, from doctors, from hospitals. Um, accessibility when you live in a certain area is is limited when it comes to accessing healthcare, period. So then if you already have a uh, a condition and then something like COVID happens, it can be life-threatening. It can be, it could be terrible. And then the last thing that this article has, it's not really an article, it's more so bullet, ah, here's the article. Anyway, either way, key findings. (laughs) Um, Differences in life expectancy vary greatly among cities with 14.7 years less in redline neighborhoods of Rochester, Minnesota, to 1.3 years greater life expectancy in redline neighborhoods of somewhere in Utah, which experienced considerable growth in urban development in the 1940s. But yeah, life expectancy goes down in redlining areas. And then this article also makes some suggestions on how we can change that. This last part that I'm going to read, a key concept of public health research involves pathways, which trace the history of social circumstances and places which create the health outcomes for communities that we see today. Many low-income Black and Hispanic communities with poor health outcomes are located in places which have been subjected to decades of deinvestment. This history of deinvestment can be traced back to the early 20th century when residential segregation was imposed in more formalized ways on cities throughout the country. This segregation was implemented using a variety of measures, including restrictive deeds and covenants, zoning regulations, public health codes, as well as officially sanctioned, quote, redlining. The impact of redlining, a practice that intentionally restricted investments in parts of American cities, based largely on the race of the people that live there, has been far-reaching, defining the residential landscape of American cities today. And then it goes on and, yeah, it goes on into the article. Again, I'll link that one, but yeah, environmental factors. Again, those areas usually don't have fresh, as much fresh food. They're not usually nearly as close to like farmers. You're not going to find a farmer's market in the hood. That's just not, that's not how it works. Um, And I hope no disrespect is taken when I refer to these more impoverished areas as the hood. Even saying it out loud sounds a little bit dicey right now, so my apologies. But again, you're not going to find a farmer's market in certain areas. There's a reason. I live in the suburbs currently, the suburb of Orlando, Florida. And I kid you not, I live within uh, two miles max of a Whole Foods, three Publix, two Aldi's. I'm surrounded because I live in a certain area. You go to different 
I we were walking literally just Saturday. Me and my boyfriend were walking downtown, going to um, the soccer stadium, and I know where we are based off. I knew where we were based off of like the streets and different things from my job. My job targets a lot of these areas for education. And what did we see? I I tell you what we didn't see. Publix, farmers markets. We saw one little corner store that boasts on the sign, which this is no disrespect to the shop owner, obviously, but it says like fresh meat, fresh fruit, beer, wine, and liquor, something to that effect. And they have food in there from what I can see from outside, but it was not the food that, if that was my only option for grocery shopping, I don't know what I would do. I'll say that. And again, that's because of that area. And it, and it's not, I say this all the time, it's by design. It's not an accident that 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 is the situation. I'll say that. So that's environmental factors. I'll leave it at that. And then social factors, the barriers that we face there. I know in the past I did an episode on friendship and how adult friendship can be hard. I recently found an account on TikTok that I also followed on Change Our Outcomes. Um, it's a woman who is a friendship expert, a black woman. And the thing that caught my eye is she gave a list of reasons why someone may not invited you somewhere or whatever. And it was very interesting. Um, we're manifesting getting her on the show. But anyway, um, friendship as an adult is hard. One, two, Black people, depending on, this kind of goes back to these other factors, depending on where you live or what you do for work or how you grew up, the goal was always to get out of your hometown. Just, I'll say it like that. I know that's what was preached to me, not necessarily from my family, but the environment and as a whole, get out of your hometown, get out of your hometown. And that displaces a lot of us to the suburbs. I literally just told y'all I live in the suburbs that displaces us to places where we sometimes don't see other black people. So it makes the adult friendship thing even harder. Or like me and my friends, our careers have taken us to literally every corner of the country. My best friend from elementary school lives in Washington state. Our best friend, our, our little group lives in LA. He lives in LA. I live here in Florida. I have friends that have moved all over, a lot of which the movement happens because of these jobs. And that can make it really hard to make to make friends as an adult when you're not even around people that share your like cultural background. Not that you can't make with race make friends with races of other people, obviously. But again, one of those an easy factor to bond off of, off rip, is race. Cause then sometimes you have an in on common interest or maybe references that like they understand again because we're black there's a book called why are all the black kids sitting together and it's it was literally about like a cafeteria situation but like in general how people link up and click up with um with like with their peers that's an easy way to link up I did not read the book I do plan on reading it but I know that that's that's the crooks of what the book is about it's about like why we see that happen in real time people like clicking up basically very very interesting so yeah, that can be another barrier for us. Or also when you get displaced from family, again, moving away for jobs and different things, you are now away from family and your village is again, that much more fractured and it's harder. And not that other people don't face that obviously, but there's something, it's, it seems to be something unique about the experience, at least for me, um, as a black woman in this social, this social landscape, like not only am I adult, but I'm now trying to navigate finding friends that have similar interests and are black and don't know anyone places. And then when I do go places, I have two jobs. A lot of people that I see in my jobs are white. So now grand, I can make friends with anybody, but again, that can be, it can be a daunting task as a black woman trying to make friends and build your village. The last thing I have um, on this little situation, I don't think I'm going to read it now, 
just because it's long and I'm coming up on, I know we had at least an hour, but it is an article from betterhealth.com and it just gives a rundown on well-being. It gives factors that are influenced by well-being and um, how the factors are interrelated. Wealth is not the key. Well-being can be elusive. You know what? I'm I'm going to read the highlights. I'm going to read the highlights. Um, factors that influence well-being. I kind of mentioned this already. Every aspect of our life influences our state of well-being. Researchers investing happiness have found that f- the following factors enhance a person's well-being. Happy, intimate relationship with a partner. Network of close friends. Enjoyable and fulfilling career. Enough money. Regular exercise. Nutritional diet. Enough sleep. Spiritual or religious beliefs. Fun hobbies and leisure pursuits. Healthy self-esteem optimistic outlook, realistic and achievable goals, sense of purpose and meaning, a sense of belonging, the ability to adapt to change, and living in a fair and democratic society. A mouthful, but all very valid. Um, I want to touch on one thing real quick, the, the nutritional diet part. This also goes back to like the environmental thing. If you're not, if you don't live in an area where there's fresh food and whatnot, your options are limited, your diet can be very reflective of that. Um, factors are interrelated. We mentioned that already. Wealth is not the key. Money is linked to well-being because having enough money improves living conditions and increases social status. However, happiness may increase with income, but only to a point. Many people believe that wealth is a fast track to happiness, but it is not true. Various international studies have shown that it's the quality of our personal relationships, not the size of our bank balance, which has the greatest effect on our state of well-being. So that is very true. Again, money cannot buy you happiness. The key there is that money can improve living condition and increase social status. Eh, mm, True. No, that is true. The increase of social status, but I don't know if that's that important. More so living conditions. And for me, again, for some people, being able to travel and things come with having a secure financial situation. Um, Well-being can be elusive. Well-being is important, but seems... A little hard to come by. One American study into mental health found that while one in four respondents was depressed, only one in five was happy. The rest fell somewhere between neither happy nor depressed. An Australian consumer study into well-being showed that 58% wished they could spend more time on improving their health and well-being. 79% of parents with children aged less than 18 years of age wished they could spend more time on improving their health and well-being, and 83% are prepared to pay more money for products or services that enhance their feelings of well-being. As someone who works in the space of health and well-being, it is so unfortunate that people think that you have to like pay for it. There are ways to, to navigate. There are barriers. That's what I've been talking about the whole time. But you don't have to pay for well-being, which is so unfortunate. The last thing I'm going to read from this article, again, it will be linked if you want to go read the whole thing. Um, How to achieve well-being. There's some tips here. The first one is develop and maintain strong relationships with family and friends. Make regular time available for social contact. Try to find work that you find enjoyable and rewarding rather than just working for the best pay. Eat wholesome, nutritious foods. Do regular physical activity. Become involved in activities that interest you. Join local organizations or clubs that appeal to you. Set yourself achievable goals and work towards them. Try to be optimistic and enjoy each day. Those are wonderful tips, but clearly rooted in idealism. They're cute tips with no substance, but that's okay. They're still solid tips. And I think why I'm saying that there is no substance, because like, now granted, this was not the job of this article, but in theory, become involved in activities that interest you. 
even though you may know what you what interests you, I'd love to see them link ways that you can find activities as an adult or joining local clubs, giving tips on how you find stuff like this or what is wholesome and nutritious food. Um, just things like that. Try to be optimistic and enjoy each day. You can be optimistic all you want, but again, when there are certain barriers glaring at you every morning when you wake up, optimism only going to do so much for you. But optimism will take you far, and I'm not discrediting optimism because optimism also will keep you alive. When people talk about resilience, optimism is their besties. You got to got to think it. You got to you got to be optimistic to to not let the world crush you. The world can be bleak. But I'm done. I'm done with that. That is well-being. That is the the hour-long version of well-being. That is the I'm laying out the framework for for well-being, but also why I'm so heavily focused. I'm a dog with a bone when it comes to black women and well-being. Because as I mentioned, there are so many obstacles and so many barriers for us for each one of these things, which I listed. So many of those things. But I know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is a way for us to tackle the barriers that are present for us other than systemic racism. Again, y'all know I know that that's not our job and I'm not that your job is not to tackle systemic racism. But there are other individual level things that we can work on, even if it's something small. So for the next we're having guests over in April, April, we'll be back with guests. We having some schedule scheduling conflicts, trying to get other adults to have time and match up it's hard so we won't have any more guests until april but that'll be here before you know it the next episode i'm going to maybe tackle one of these things more specifically and get back into our typical deep diving i also want to try something new here's the new stuff that i mentioned at the beginning of the episode i would love to talk to one of you all i obviously love interviewing the the women that I have interviewed and I find them for very specific reasons, but I would love to talk to one of my listeners and talk about this episode. Not necessarily like, oh, what do you think of the episode? But take a thoughtful listen and then I want to engage in a conversation for next episode. I would love for that to be the next episode where we talk about what a normal, average, everyday woman's take on this whole well-being concept is. So if you're interested, hit me up. Um, or if you know somebody that might by, might be interested, tell them to hit me up tell whoever to hit me up because I would love to talk to you all I love the comments that you leave and everything um I engage with some of you in real life about my podcast all the time but I would love to hear and record and share some of your thoughts on on this particular idea and just moving forward I would love to do that I like to interview people I love the women that I do interview but I would also love to talk to you all more more often I think that would be a great contribution to what we're trying to do here so yeah if it wasn't apparent enough, this is me wrapping it up. Um, going forward, I think one of the reasons why I try to keep the episodes at like an hour and an hour always feels so slightly cringe to me because to me, I'm like, who is about to sit around and listen to me talk for an hour? That seems preposterous to me, but that is also my own insecurities popping out thinking, oh, no one wants to hear what I have to say. But like the verdict is in. Y'all have told me you do want to hear what I have to say. But also, I can't talk too much longer. An hour and 15 minutes probably is my max because like my throat's starting to hurt. I got other stuff to do. But yeah, so anyway, we're wrapping it up. <laughs> we're wrapping it up. That is that is irrelevant. I just One last thing that I do want to say though is that everything that I do here, the podcast, the Instagram, the website that is coming, it's, ooh, I'm almost done. I got to take headshots. Um, the interviews, all of it 
are in hopes that someone will get a message that can help them learn what they need. I think by hearing some of these stories from other women, but also hearing me talk about these topics, you might hear something that you're like, you know what? She's right. I don't have very many friends and I do find making friends hard or like, um, I do have a little religious trauma or I don't have a good relationship with money. And that will lead you to start your own conversation with your peers, me, or even just doing your own research and like reading to try to improve your own life. My hope is to always inspire someone to take control of what they can. Some factors are out of our control, but some of them we can make personal individual level decisions to take control of our life and live to the fullest. When you take control and you feel empowered, that is when you are truly living your best life. And that's that's what I want for all of you. That's what I want for myself. And that's what I hope you get from listening to me talk about well-being for an hour. <laughs> okay. So typical outro. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more from me and other Black women professionals in the future, don't forget to follow the podcast, turn on your downloads slash notifications, and please, 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 please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if it's not five stars, y'all know the drill. Come talk to me first before you lead that review. Come talk to me. And then, of course, share the show with the Black woman you love or any woman you love. You can keep up with me and the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. The Facebook page is up. We're ready for discussion. But don't none of y'all follow it because I have not promoted it anywhere. But just like our Instagram, the Facebook is at Change Our Outcomes. You can email me at changeouroutcomes at gmail.com. Or you can join the discussion on Facebook, like I mentioned. Or again, the website will have forums and each episode will have its own forum. So we can go there and kiki about what we heard and maybe get inspiration from other people. You heard me and then maybe someone in the forum will be like, oh, this is what I do. And then boom, you made a friend and you got a tip. And last but not least, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Change our outcomes, no space. We got one video up right now and it's the interview with the lovely Veronica Chapman. It's a good one. I think quality, mwah, chef's kiss. I did my thing on uh, Final Cut Pro. So yeah, go watch it, go subscribe, go like it, leave a comment there. And yeah, all the information for all the social media handles that I just mentioned will be in the description along with the articles. And as always, thank you for your support. And if no one has told you, Black girl, your well-being matters. Black girl, you deserve peace. And Black girl, you are loved. Thanks for listening.